I'm Paul Dunn and welcome to The Creative Relay, the podcast where Australia's most inspiring creatives talk to the creatives that most inspire them. Brought to you by Smith & Weston. So here's the deal. Each episode you'll hear from an inspiring creative mind, first to be interviewed and then interviewing the creative of their choice in the following episode. Before we begin, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. Last time, Jonathan Kneebone helped uncover Tara Ford's many hidden talents, including her knack for impersonating water-based mammals. Uh, Rumour has it that you have a signature sound that has actually been sampled by a London DJ who's used it on a track. Now, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. Could you give us a little demonstration of Um. this sound, please? (laughs) So good. Unbelievable, Tara. So now it's Tara's turn to pass on the baton. You're listening to the Creative Relay podcast. So, Tara Ford, thank you so much for returning to the Creative Relay. Thank you for having me. Last time you left us with quite an alluring kind of intriguing hint as to who you were going to ask back. Would you care to remind us of what that hint was? I think I said that uh, my guest would have, well, I've heard he has a uh, tough outer exterior and a soft centre. Okay, so would you like to reveal then who this mystery person is? It's Cam Blackley. Cam Blackley. Why don't we get him in? Please do. I'm wearing my mask. Lucky I'm wearing pants. For now. Please keep them on. (laughs) Well, this is nice. Isn't it? So we've just... That is so off-putting. That is not fair. I've got makeup here if you want some more. No. I carry it around. I like to do it. Just randomly. Dinner parties, you go to the bathroom, you come back out, you go... Uh, okay, so, uh, Cam Blakely, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Creative Relay and thank you for wearing um, Halloween makeup. Face paint. Face paint. I do it from time to time. Well, thanks for having me. Um, let's hope this isn't boring. So far, it's not. Okay. You do have questions. Hi. Hi. I do have some <laughs> questions. Of course I do. Otherwise, what's the point getting you here? I'm going to get into a relaxed position. So... I feel like we've been in parallel a little bit too. Like I've seen you from time to time at things, but we've never really spoken. So this is why I wanted to, you know, have this chat. So congratulations on your new job. Thanks. I'm looking forward to that one. ECD to CCO. Yeah, I think it's kind of the natural progression, but um, the way, you know, I love BMF to death, absolutely. And I think it's the best ECD job in the in the world. And I'm not just saying that, like I've had a, a glorious time there. Um, but I think Getting out of your comfort zone and going to like into probably one of the biggest roles in the country that's available is you know feels like a massive challenge and one that I need and the people there are great so we'll give it a go. Yeah, it's a it's a massive job for sure. So it's interesting because um, I went back over the PR articles because of course you've been in the PR uh, recently mm-hmm. um, 
And something that I found is quite interesting is that you used to have Son of David behind your name. I think that's purely lynchy. I, I never put Son of David. I no. usually put Son of God. Okay, <laughs> that's lovely. <laughs> but I think, and I think in um, one of the things, because someone said it, because I don't like to read too much of that stuff unless it's glowing, but I think someone said they had mentioned Dad as well in Maybe it was campaign brief or... Okay. Well, I've just noticed that, you know, if you go back further, it's it's everywhere. And mm-hmm. now recently it's, you know, it's not everywhere for mm-hmm. sure. Um, but I guess I'm quite interested to know what it was like growing up with a dad in advertising. Yeah. Um, I've got four boys and... Um, One of them will be in advertising. Well, I don't know. I'm just interested to know how that was. Um, well, I mean, he always warned... Both my sister and I off advertising. You know, he said, don't get into it. Um, of course you're going to do the opposite then. Well, you know, I really didn't plan on doing it. I got into architecture at Monash and then I went and I did some work experience in an architecture firm and I thought, holy smoke, this isn't going to be uh, for me. And then um, I went and did art school at Brighton Tech and then I re-went for universities again, got into RMIT and it was graphic design at that stage. And how it came about that I ended up in advertising it's twofold. It was graphic design, and I thought, well, I'll be a graphic designer. And back then it was all Neville Brodie and The Face, you know, the magazine The Face, and really type and typography and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they moved RMIT's graphic design campus from the city to Bandura, and I'm very lazy. I thought, I'm not going to bloody do that. So instead I stayed because they turned the um, graphic design course into an advertising course. So I naturally, like year two, so it became an advertising course. I'm like, here we go. You know, this is fate putting me on the track. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I kind of, I, you know, when we were outside, I was about to allude to this, but I was always thought it was much more romantic to, you know, when I heard the stories of people going through the mail room or people starting as a TV assistant and stealing briefs and all that kind of stuff. And um, I'm not to say that I, I got to do it that way, but I got my job through entering a competition in a newspaper to be a copywriter and I ended up writing catalogues at Grey. So that was my in. But your question was around um, dad. So um, so then I felt I'll, uh, quite a bit of stigma around it because obviously Clemens was successful. Uh, he was very successful and then the pressure was on. So I think uh, I spent a lot, of, a lot of my time trying to disassociate myself from the name and everyone else was trying to associate. And I was stupid, but that's what you are when you're a kid. I should have just bloody got on board and, and gone with it. But Did it look like fun, like when you were a kid? It looked like daiquiris. Did it? That looks it like looked, fun. It looked like it looked like a load of daiquiris. Yeah. Um, uh, late nights. Mm. Yeah, it did look. I guess so, but I don't think I actually ever thought of it as a job like that. Yeah. And um, still, it's got to be the best job in the world. It still has so many things that no other job can offer. Like every day is different. Every brief is different. You can approach something. You can approach the same brief if it happens to be very similar from completely different angles. So I think, you know, that's the refreshing thing about advertising. I think it's always been there. And even though we need to be very on the ball and very buttoned down, there's still that freedom there that I don't think you see in any other kind of industry. Yeah, it's always fresh, if you, isn't if it? You, um, if you give it the chance to be. Yeah, okay. Strawberry daiquiris one day, mm. banana the next. <laughs> um, I think it's all Negronis now, isn't it? Oh, yes. yeah. Um, okay, so you also went to London quite early on, is mm-hmm. that right? So when, when did that happen? That happened uh, around, I, I think, it, yeah, it was straight from Grey. Um, 
I worked with Jason Williams at Grey. We were a team for four years, and then we decided um, it was either Sydney, like it was either branch out and go to Sydney, which is um, like seemed crazy far away for some reason. It was really go and test ourselves, and I think again maybe part of being a silly kid, but also quite an ambitious kid as well. Get away from far away from the association of dad's name yeah. and see if I can go and do it for myself. And and also the other thing was, you know, I never I, I thought there was probably some some spark there, but I never thought I was, and I still don't think I'm the finished article. So it was about who can I work with and who can I track down as mentors and who could kick the crap out of me and, and mould me into something. So, and I, and I, I still want to do that. I still, you know, I still want to talk to people who can make me better or work with people who can make me better, you know, and inspire me and whatever. So that's kind of, that was the London thing. And Zorica and I had been together a few years and, we, and she'd never been overseas and it was like, let's, let's go do it. Let's bite the bullet. You know, everyone else is doing it. Yeah. Well, I think I was doing it at the same time. And I think you were at Abbott Mead, were you not? Yeah. Yeah, so you talk of mentors. So who who did you find there? Um, there are well, a few goodies there. Yeah. So I think true mentors and um, Abbott Mead, like the, the ones that I um, really clicked with was Paul Belford and Nigel Roberts. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know... The list was huge there. I mean, Tony Cox was there, and, and he was a, a lovely guy. Um, there was uh, Nick Worthington, Paul Brazier, um, Stephen Vick, Dave Dyer, Sean Doyle. Mm-hmm. Tom and Walt were actually Abbott Mead as well. And, um, you know, when I arrived, they were just going to production on Guinness Surfer, and, and that was an intimidating team, mm. only for just the sheer volume of trophies that was sitting in cardboard boxes in their office. I mean, they lived in a tip and made some of the best work in the world. Um, I found... Lots of big names yeah, there. Yeah, they were big names. And, you know, going and showing an economist scribble or a ready break 10 by 4 or whatever it was that we were doing to um, to Dave Dye was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And also all his layouts are done the size of a postage stamp as well. So it's um, it's quite intimidating when you go in there because it's very methodical and small. And, oh, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I worked with Paul and Nigel at TBWA in London. Yeah. And they were known as Grim and Grimmer. Well, that reputation semi-followed them but I never saw it did you work a lot with them not a lot no but because I they were I, terrifying figures in the corner yeah I think they were really passionate about the work and about the craft and they'd make you go back um, 50 times on a headline and and whatever but I, it was never uh, playing the man it was always the ball it was always about the best um, quality work and I think I understood that and I needed it and and so I took it and th- and they were willing to throw me a bone where it wasn't always forthcoming so yeah. elsewhere. And I remember that feeling of like when they liked something it was like the clouds parted and the sun came and shone on you for a moment wasn't it? It's Go just home and like, a little cry. Oh my god, <laughs> they liked something I do. Yeah. But, oh, I mean... And, Incredibly hard to mimic those two as well. Like from um, from work point of view, like I mean, Paul's reference books could fill a library, and they're very methodical in the way they're put together and and, and whatever. But the way that they would take a, a headline that kind of posed a problem and then sort of answered it um, in a pithy way, and then um, and find that design element around it. Um, almost impossible to replicate. Yeah, I think they did the Nissan stuff when they were over at TWA. That the um, stuff with the spray painting and the type, 
tiny logos and really tiny type. They, the they love tiny logos, that's yeah. for sure. If the logo could be on the back, that would even be even better. But I thought that was genius because their work was so engaging that you would you wanted to know yeah. who the brand was, you know, and and they were they were that was really their school of thought, you know, that they make ads that are so interesting that you needed to know more about the client rather than whacking a massive beer label in the corner that you couldn't miss or whatever. Yeah, I always felt like they went quite close to it being art. You know, mm-hmm. like they really skimmed that world. Yeah. And they were very obsessive too. Like, do, do you feel like you're obsessed in the business and obsessed in your work? Do you, like, do you go home and think about it? Do you find it hard to switch off? Yeah, yeah. but I think that's okay. What, I, what I've learnt and, and now what I try and um, manufacture with my creatives and my teams and my department or, you know, beyond the department into the, the uh, agency wider is not this... Uh, this need to have the longest hours on timesheets or evidence of industry. I like people to work in short bursts to get away to do the things I want to do because I think as creative people are always thinking. And I think once you actually step away from the grind, step away from the seat or from feeling that you need to be the last person out the door at night, not if you're a junior, if you're a junior, stay there. Um, but if to be the last person out the door at night, um, I think you become fresher and I think you, you make better work. Totally. And so I think the obsession is always got a pen or a notepad or nowadays, you know, you can hit notes on your phone, you can put things in. It's always going going along. Um, but I, I think just working smarter, you know. Is yeah. Something that you... And actually stepping away from the advertising environment, you know, and not being informed by ad people and advertising but being informed by well, someone think... on the bus or, you know, an art you know, exhibition or something like that. And I think as a, um, a young person, and I, and I don't see annuals around anymore, which is a little bit of a shame, but I think it used to be a, a funny, very circular thing of award books come out, get read the award books, make work, hope, you know, you don't want to replicate what's in the award books, but it can't help but rub off. And then that cycle goes again and you're kind of stuck here yeah. and you're at a desk and you're under a lamp and you're exhausted and you're not getting anywhere. I think now it's the can finalists, isn't it? You, you review, you know, all the Grand Prix winners <laughs> yeah. and the golds and, you know, oh, what did they do? Yeah, How did they yeah, structure the case study? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, the case studies are more interesting than the work half the time. So from London, what was the next step? Was it New York? I was at Abbott Mead for four, over four years. Maybe it was four and a half. And I got made redundant and it was the most devastating thing of my entire career at the time and I couldn't work it out because I think you're only thinking about yourself and your um, ego's growing and you're making some work that's getting noticed and picking up stuff and you're thinking oh, here we go and then to get made redundant was uh, I found it debilitating at the time but it turned and you know and Peter Suter's words were go back to Australia your time in London's done or something like that something that was a bit spiking and um but I thank him for that because there was a couple of things that happened there was, nah, um, it's not done. So that was a new challenge to reprove myself and, and to re-get that spark. Um, but it actually launched me into that thing of you've worked with all these great people here. Go find some other people to work with. And um, it's just so happened that um, Dave Droger was taking over the publicist network. And I love Nick Sudinsky's work and Gav Kellett's work and, you know, and I love the stuff that had been coming out of Saatchi's and I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll just bide my time and I'll just hammer Nick and Gav until they give me a job. And I got myself in there and that was great. I mean, that was a massive moment in time for me because you, from there, that was really the launch pad 
So there was two ways to go there. It was to kick stones and pack up my stuff and go on a failure and come back and, and try and work it all out. And I'm sure it would have worked out, but in a slightly different way. Yeah. Um, or to really kind of knuckle down, you know, and, and get into it again. So I feel like a career in advertising, like it's interesting you, you talk about this because I think, you know, I, I also talked about a similar kind of thing, you know, um, and I think to have a long career in advertising, you have to be very tenacious and you have to say, you have to, like, people say no to you all the time and you have to just go, you know what, no, no to your no and I'm going to go and do something. Yeah, so. you've got to be incredibly resilient and I think I wasn't, you know, I was always, always overly sensitive to stuff and I think creative people are. See, he's got a soft centre. Mm. What? Nothing. So when you were told that your, your time in London was done... It was kind of a killer blow. Did he do it in any way to give you a bit of a G-up, or do you think he sincerely meant, not oh, just bugger off and go back home well, to the colonies? Well, it wasn't... It felt like a hammer blow, but it was a bit off the cuff, like, like literally, yeah, it, that's your, your time's done. And, you know, obviously my time was up at Abbott Mead... Again, best thing that could have happened, but soul-destroying to the to the ego at the time, you know. But it's amazing that you could turn that around and just go, oh, well, no, you're not going to dictate to me. It was a process, but I, I think, but yeah, definitely, and it was, uh, yeah, I think you have shock, anger, reflection in that order, and then you go, just a second, you know, you, you, know, you can take this somewhere from here, so. Uh, yeah. uh, but then everything sort of fell into place from there, if you kind of look at the, the chronology of stuff. Droga grabbed me to go and do a pitch in Mexico. And then later on, a, a pitch in San Francisco. So it was, you know, I was making contact there, and um, and you know, as we'll get to, like that led to uh, me going there, kind of at the start of of something kind of quite special over in New York. So. And how was that at the start? Well, it was good, and I was about number twelve or number eleven. I um, my job interview was haggling over ten grand, and then building the IKEA shelves in the Broadway office. So that was kind of cool, you know, and you know, I think there was a, a again, like everything has been a learning experience from job to job, and I go, and I look at how people are treated in certain places, and uh, the, the kind of the vibe that I've liked in certain agencies, and the work ethic I've liked in certain agencies, and I'm just sort of as, as time goes by, I'm constructing those into what I think is the, the, the perfect combo, and that combo of a startup is absolutely incredible because you've, you're working for a cause. It's you against the world. It's not, yeah. a, you know, every bit of business matters. Every person you work with, and there was not very many of us, and they'd just done Air Force One. So they'd sort of, you know, yeah. they'd hit this. That was the, it. Yeah, well, they'd, they'd hit the big time with the first bit of content in history, really. No media spend billions of views so you know we're off and then it, but then it was time to kick it on and on and on you know but you know working with a, a bunch of people who are all sort of committed you know dave is an incredibly charismatic guy mm. that was incredible to be there then yeah amazing mm. and then that job brought you back to australia is that right you you opened this well you came when the sydney office opened did you yeah open well mum wasn't well and um yeah we'd been in new york three years and our daughter was born there so it just so happened that Droga was opening um, in Sydney and it was kind of good timing and I went to Dave and and I said I've got to go and um, family and all that and um, that all fell into place. But, you know, I was flying up and down to um, Melbourne every day. So that was a bit distracting. Yeah, yeah but it was, that was, a again, it was a, a great time. You know, Nobby had opened the doors um, in a little house in Surrey Hills. Um, there was a one creative team there. 
there was a, Australia's biggest beer account had just landed in the door and everyone's going like, well, what are we going to do? They don't want for a hard-earned thirst anymore. It's only the, the most famous line in history. What are we going to do? So, you know, that was, a, a again, a, a great, great challenge. Um, and I think we got to some pretty good um, solutions along the way. So I want to hear more about your favourite parts of the job and, you know, what it's been like being a creative and, like, <clears throat> what, what bits do you... does you know, makes it worth coming into work and really inspires you? Well, I think it changes over your career. My satisfaction now is more about seeing a cohesive, happy, productive people making um, great work across many clients, not just being a key client that you're going after and hammering and letting, you know, and just getting stuff out the door to the side, um, you know, business as usual, BAU as they'd call it. So, I mean, I really like that and so and, and trying to construct um, a creative department that is based on personalities that all fit together. So, you know, there's a lot of good people out there, but it doesn't mean that all those people can work together. So I've worked really, really hard on, you know, the genetic makeup of the creative department. Yeah. And that really pays off. So we run leaner. And I love them all to death. I love them dearly. They're they're great people, and they're they're really really talented. But seeing them fire, and you know, and naturally, mm. your name goes at the top. But it's their work, you know. So there's a great uh, amount of satisfaction within that. And then I think before actually running an entire department as a CD, um, I'm not sure how other CDs work, but I've always been a very very hands on, like a little bit too much. Maybe write the theme tune, sing the theme tune. So the satisfaction was, again, ego-driven. So I'd maybe have one one team or two teams and it was working with them, but maybe feeding too much of the idea in, um, which is okay if the if it comes off. Um, but that was much more around the, the drive for um, awards and, um, and glory. And then I think, you know, when you go back in time... Um, the thing that you really look forward to is, um, and you brought it up before, just some sense of recognition from people that you respect that you're getting somewhere or that you you make something which is halfway good mm. or an idea that they can take and go like boom and make it into something great but yeah. because you took them the seed, you know, you know, it's all good and you feel really good about that. So so I think that's the way um, that, that's kind of the different different satisfactions you get along the um, the kind of the timeline of your career. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in that transition from creative to leader, and I think you probably talked a lot then in your answer about being a leader. Um, mm. And that's not something that every creative can do. Did you Do you feel like that came naturally to you? I think obviously it's, I've always had it in me because it's, it's working out now, but I tell you what, when, and people... I always say that I was a nightmare when I first got to BMF and people go like, no, you weren't. But I think probably um, very harsh on myself. But after working my little droga bubble where I just had my clients, I hadn't had any real f- sort of formal training in the financial side. But you don't uh, as a creative, uh, right? No, no, you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah no one, no one gives you that. It's a bit of a shock. Absolutely shocked to death. But the, the worst thing for me, second pivotal moment, uh, probably third pivotal moment um, in my career was having to fire 30 people. That was 100 times worse than getting made redundant. Like, getting made redundant actually turned out to be great. Um, and I thought, I know, you know, how do we get here and, and, and how do we stop this from happening? And then that's when I think the leadership skills kick in because then it becomes about the people. And when you start focusing on the people, the work comes rather than focusing on the work. 
So I tried to make sure, and I, and I, if I, I'm quite visual, so I'd be drawing this with a pen, but my pens have been taken away. But what I did was I tried to run a leaner creative team with a, always a buffer, and the leaner creative team meant that they all got to make work. They were busy, and so we never had any creators going like, oh, you've got nothing to do, blah, blah, blah. They're all making work, but if we lost a client, I just had this pot of cash and, and you know, the people go, like, you've got this money here, you can put in more teams. And I'm going, like, trust me, this is the, the way to run it. And we just had fewer, more brilliant people who really clicked well together. And that's where um, that's where the leadership skills come in, where it becomes about the people and managing them so um, they can be in a place of safety. Mm. You know, they don't have to worry about you know, a medium size or a small client walking out the door, meaning it's one or two jobs or a big client going and it's meaning 10 jobs. So that was really what I was looking for is people to feel confident that their work, and they could pr always present the very best work and the work that they really felt was going to do the job, not dumb down work without fear that it was going to have a, a knock-on effect that they might lose their job. Well, that's a really interesting way of kind of looking at it, a different approach to it. Mm. You just talked about that the genetic makeup of the creative department, mm -hmm. which I think sounds really interesting. So how do you go about figuring that out? What's your process? It's gut. It's, it's, it's touchy-feely and it's gut. And, but I don't mean like I'm not touching and feeling the stuff. Um, but <laughs> but I but, <laughs> just to, let me just say that right there. I'm no Harvey Weinstein. Um, you need people with different skills. So I have great talent spotters who are fine, great young people. I have um, a bikey with a sensitive side. You know, I have 50 brilliant, brilliant women who are mothers and they can come in on flexible times. They can come in three days a week. They can work from home. We're just plugging the right people because I don't think you can... I think you need... And you're doing that not to fill quotas, but... No, uh, I'm, doing, I'm you... doing it because we need interesting people with different points of view. And then the other thing I don't really have, I've got, I think, two teams, but mostly singles. And then I can take those and go, okay, you go Oh, you. do you mix them out for depending on the project? Yeah, depending on the project. Okay, I'll put... Millie with Lincoln, a designer and a and a writer with a particular point of view or whatever. So I, I really like doing that. And I think sometimes it can be frustrating for the teams in that they think they need to be with someone for career progression, but I think the work shows that they, they, they get better stuff out when they have the, the right combo mm. of people. So, yeah, I like to work like that. And That sounds like a lot of work for you, like just being the puppeteer like that. I don't really find that work and I guess right. you know if you now you've put a spotlight on it I'll be probably sweating over it a bit too much but it it feels kind of natural and I'll go like okay. you know what's coming up who have we got who can we plug together and listen well, I do have I do have some teams and uh, a couple of teams in there and they work brilliantly together but sometimes we bring a third in we'll have a, a bring a second writer in on a project or we'll put a designer and an art director and the writer together to work something through and then um and beyond that we also have very tightly the planners plugged into that process as well because I'm a big believer in planning and we've got great planners. Um, and some of those planners also write as well so they can do yeah. creative. Quite often they can, can't they? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had planners that have said a line. I was like, oh, well, thank you. I'll have that. Thank you. I mean, you'll be credited, but, yeah, let's just yeah, pop that in. Thanks. Very handy. It's can come from anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you've, you've got to spot it, though. So, um, yeah, and I, and I think... It'll be interesting um, in the new role to see. I mean, that, it obviously takes time. It's taken me 
three and a half, almost four years to really get that rhythm. Um, and I think it's probably been firing along quite well for 18 months of that. You know, there's, you know, you have people that come and go. Well, the other thing that I also do with the teams is make it absolutely permissible for them to resign and leave and go elsewhere with blessing. So it doesn't need to be awkward. And if they want to go overseas and done my uh, darndest to ring up people or write people or get people over into the right jobs over there. Because I think, again, um, taking away another little niggle that they might have in their, their minds, you've got middleweight teams or, or junior middleweight teams who you know need to do that overseas thing. And if you just say to them up front, let's talk about a timeline. I did it with Jim and Ryan, you know, when they before they went over to Droga. What's your timeline? We, 12, 18 months, and they, they kind of said, yeah, around 18 months. I said, okay, well, then let's structure how we get you some leadership, how we work towards that goal, and then when it comes around, it's um, no big deal. But also by them showing me that trust and me showing them that trust, we can make sure that we feed the pipe with the right people because you can't just go outside and pluck another team off the street. Like You've got to interview and work out are they good cats or are they bad cats you know will they fit yeah, can they yeah work exactly with? and you know and, and quite often you know it's a little bit of a try before you buy thing nowadays isn't it you, you get them in for a little while and see how it works out and it's so i mean it's so good for teams to go overseas i think and have that experience you, gotta, you know get out of your comfort zone you've got well we both did it and you know yeah. i think it's so healthy yeah and, uh, and but it also it's part of um growing up isn't it because you can't just nick around to your parents and and get something sorted out for you or whatever you've got to talk to the real estate brokers and come up with the two and a half months in advance cash and all the kind of things that you know you've got to do you've got to sign papers and and get american id and all that kind of stuff so it's good you know you've got to do it so just since we're talking about leadership what do you think is going to be the difference the main differences between being ecd and then going to cco i don't think it's going to be as remarkably different for me as it might be for someone else because I'm the ECD and uh, there's no there's no CCO of BMF. So I, I think, you know, th- there's already a lot of the skills there and I think we already do that, but it's also going to be a it's a much bigger role and there's other companies in the group which I'll be liaising with and working with on, on ideas and, and a big creative direction for, you know, the entire MC Saatchi group. It'll be good, just bigger and more people to convince that this is the way that we should do things and also quite a bit of listening to do as well yeah. and seeing how their culture works. I'm not going to go in like a, a bull in a china shop and, you know, I'll just be quietly going about my, my thing. And as I say, they're, they're lovers of advertising and um, advertising product and the advertising industry. So hopefully it's not going to be quite as um, abrupt as the start at BMF was. When I started there, it was like got a couple of pictures on, um, oh, I love the, thank God you're here, <laughs> which is like, oh, shit. I thought I was just going to cruise for a little while. No. Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> no, I'm no, going to solve that. I, I'm pretty sure that I, I'm, I'm going to need to hit the ground running there, so that's fine. Fine by me. And what do you think's given your career longevity? Uh, like, what do you think's important to... I guess it would be the resilience part. Yeah. And... I mean, I'm sure I've pissed people off along the way, but managing to rebuild those bridges if I have. And learning, I think I learn from my mistakes quite well and then observe others' mistakes and make sure that I, um, for the most part, don't make those. Mm. And and put the good, as I said before, take the good bits, that I, the things that I think 
make people bubble and boil with ideas and, and try and put those into practice and try and take away those barriers or those those pain points or, you know, sometimes it can always be um, money that can fix a problem, you know, especially in a, um, you know, medium-sized, small-medium-sized company. So you've got to find ways around that and, and what how can you make people tick and, and, and what, what delights them and um, when do they need extra time off for free and all that kind of stuff. So Yeah, you can, I always think you can learn a lot from looking at other people's mistakes or mm-hmm. things that have happened to you that you think, I feel really pissed off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so when yeah, you get yeah. to that point where you could make that decision or a different decision, you go, ah, I didn't like it when such and such did that, so perhaps I'm going to find another way to do it, yeah. you know. It's funny looking at the industry and, and how we're, we're coming around, but I, go, I started life as quite a sensitive soul and I still have that sensitivity there but I think it gets ground out of you a bit and you have to play to a certain set of advertising structures and behaviours and I don't think that they're always healthy I think they can involve uh, being a bit unpleasant. What do you Uh, mean by that? uh, Well I think from the from where we've come from I think uh, I could say boys club mentality and I, I think you know different agencies have had their their different ways of going about stuff but I think it was much more male orientated and it was much more male teams and that was much more competitive and then you had to play um play hard in a certain kind of way so do you mean in a male kind of yeah. way like things that were inherently masculine yeah, you just had to be a, a yeah a little bit more kind of had to have more front and you had to show less empathy yeah it's and, been it's been hard yeah <laughs> it's been quite hard for me but now i go around and go like so I, I had to have that. Uh, I had to play to a certain way, and now I've come back to the other side and go. Oh, I can, I can just bring that empathy back in, and that kind of yeah. uh, a, a kindness that can actually generate just as good a work as pressure. You know, and, totally. You know, so that's where I'm kind of heading with it, anyway. And, and I've found that clients more and more respond to that too. Like if you sit in a meeting and you talk in a really like open, honest, empathetic way and emotional way about something, they. They love it, you know. Don't so it's, have all it's the good for work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, it's just another way, another way about it. And I think you know, people thrive in different ways. And some people, you know, I, I wouldn't change the way that I got to where I got to now because I am the person because of yeah. because of it, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that it's the right way for everyone. And and I just think we need to be highly aware that that people thrive in different ways. Have you been accused of being intimidating in the past? I mean... Yep. Yeah? Yep. Uh, I'm 100 kilos of um, face-painted uh, kind of... I would say I have a, a, a resting bitch face, but, uh, you know, behind it is marshmallows and lollipops. But <laughs> There you go. <laughs> but I think I've played to it as well. I think that I've played to that thing in the past, but that's fine. You know, that, you you can't change your outward appearance, but I think I think those people who know me and the people who've worked for me for the most part are uh, pretty down with the way that I I roll on stuff, and um, I, I'm not personal um, in any way. You know, it's definitely it's definitely about the work, and and if it's come off slightly harsh in the past, it's you know I'm, I'm trying to rein that in, and I, I have reined it in. Um, I'm a, a a work in progress, like anyone. <laughs> So I want to hear about the most outrageous thing you've ever presented to a client. Can you think of something where you may have gone just 
a little too far with the bravery. Yeah, when we were in, um, but I didn't go into the room because, because oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so take the bravery away. But Droga, when it presented it for Mike's Hard Lemonade, we presented a campaign called My Gay Hand. Um, it was funny, but probably uh, looking back, uh, not appropriate. Could you describe the uh, I idea? Guess, uh, alcoholic lemonade and, um, you know, think about locker rooms, like, you know, or someone running out to a footy field and someone smacking them on the butt. So, anyway, it was that was my go hand. Um, so that was probably the most outrageous. How did that go? Uh, that bombed. Yep. That that meant that uh, I don't think we got the pitch. Ba- uh, one oh, it was pitch on work. That. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's good to go in strong, I guess. <laughs> Start as you mean to continue. If, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if um, we were told it was being presented but it was probably tucked neatly into the, the bottom of the art bag. Uh I want to hear yours. Uh, well, when I was working for PlayStation in London, they would always like challenge us to, you know, don't show us anything you've showed us before, go a bit further, like it shouldn't look like a PlayStation ad, it should look like something completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, so my partner and I, um, well, she was the art director and she made this little dog character and this, this dog character was you know, going to stick his head out windows and, you know, it was all about exhilaration. But she made the character um, up out of um, pictures she'd cut out of um, pornos. So, <laughs> but it was quite hard to pick and we presented it yeah, yeah. and no one knew in the room. Right, right, um, until, until they looked We told them later, oh, right, but right. it was, it was basically a um, dog made out of vaginas, yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. It didn't go to print, but um, it was quite fun. <laughs> So what do you look for in a creative? Like, what are the traits that you have to have as a creative, a great creative, do you believe? Well, I think it's, it's probably a bit cliche to say they've got to be a nice person, but they they kind of be, got to be a nice person. I, I hired a winemaker from Western Australia who's turned out to be a great creative. He's about to uh, move to London. He's He's got himself on the top list and he's made some great Audi work and um, and is a genuinely uh, good bloke. So it's not that I need a um, a portfolio full of awards or, or any of that kind of stuff, but it's probably um, the potential of the work based on maybe more strategic or creative insight rather than execution. And I've always found that uh, those are the books that stand out the most and, and they don't always... A lot of people overlook them because they want the they, they kind of like the, the tricks and the bells and whistles. But if you can see something a deeper thought underneath that can sustain for a long time or be executed in a lot of ways, and it feels much more adult, you know, I, especially in junior grades. When I see that kind of stuff, I generally try to um, jump on that. And also, just again, a little bit cliche, but stuff where you go, "Fuck my my mind wouldn't have um, thought of that that way into that problem," you know. And I think it's really, really important to have people who do that rather than um, people who think alike. Yeah, it's great when you're surprised, isn't it? A little piece of me dies, of course. Um, I know. It's like a little bit of jealousy. It's just like, oh, my God. How did you do that? I'm going to act cool, but seriously, I'm impressed. Back in the day, you'd present a script, and if it didn't have a gag, it was like, Where's the gag? Where's the repre- you know? Where's the reprise? Where's the you know, the funny bit? Yeah, uh, and you actually want more a, of that. It was, it was a period of, period of time where the balance was right, and you had funny stuff in the right spots, and you had um, 
worthy stuff or you had serious stuff or you had emotional stuff in the right spot. I think we've swung all the way away from gags. So I was saying before, um, I lament that there's not more gags. I, I think we're in the entertainment business and brands should have personalities that go beyond uh, just being cause-related or feeling that they need to have a cause or be worthy about stuff. Naturally, is our job, if it, you're talking about a television commercial or whatever or you know, even serving up stuff now on web via any of those kind of channels that we, where we force people to view our work, we're pushing stuff on them, so why not entertain them? We're in the entertainment business. That's the, the first. That's our number one role. I mean, entertainment can be emotional, but it can also be funny. And, and you know, for me, funny most of the time wins. Or wit, you know, I think, you know, funny can be perceived in, or executed in a, a lot of ways. It's not just like a saucepan in the face, but, um, yeah, I like a bit of humour, you know. Yeah, because the, the world's pretty serious right now, so... Feels like this is that the, could this be the is thing the to stand moment in out. Time. Let's, you know, that should be the advertising industry's you know cause going forward. Let's let's laugh. make the world laugh again. Why has it become so serious? Do you think? Well, I just think it's a series of events. You know, there's there's world events going on, and there's all kinds of things that um, aren't going in people's favour, and um, from financial standpoints, government issues, and all that kind of stuff. And and I think um, marketers are. Are riding that wave of sympathy a bit too hard would probably be a, a way to describe it. And I, I don't know about you, but how many meetings do you go into where it's the millennials and they need a purpose and they only want to be associated with brands that have a you know a higher cause because they don't really like brands. Do they not laugh? They yeah. don't. <laughs> they laugh in private. Yeah, they, yeah, only in private. Well, we should give them some you know some marketing material that they can laugh to in private. Then, um, yeah, you do you do have a bit of that naturally, and I, I think. Uh, there's more experts than ever that are telling us how different segmentations think, how the, the lumber sexuals should think and how the metrosexuals are thinking and how the millennials are devouring their content. But at the end of the day, I think we should just be going with our guts a little bit more and, and delivering them some, you know, just some entertainment, something that tweaks them, something they can share or something they can make themselves, you know. It's funny, isn't it? Because, like... You, know, the, you talk about everyone like the work being so worthy and serious, yeah. and it is. You, then as soon as you finish doing a presentation, you turn around to the people and you're having the most hilarious conversations. Yeah, the, advertising is just filled with hilarious people. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Or, or you know, when you're coming up with ideas, oh god, I love that. I love those things when you are just literally sitting around and just crying, and it's probably because it's completely inappropriate. But just crying with laughter at the possibility of how you could execute an idea. And Keo actually mentioned when when he was chatting to us about how most of his best work, he reckons, has pretty much started as as a joke, or you know something that oh well we couldn't do that. Yeah, could we? And then yeah. it just suddenly you know Definitely. snowballs into oh well we're doing that. It yeah, takes yeah. five minutes. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And I quite often have to get people to document stuff like you know when we're. Uh, at the pub or we're sitting around, I need people to write that stuff down because it goes from my, my memory. Well, you have a stenographer whenever you go to the pub. So I need to follow me around everywhere. What's your favourite bit of work that you've done? When you say I've done, do you mean under my tenure or personally written? I reckon it'd be good for both if you, if you gave us one of each. Well, I think under my tenure because... I saw it on the wall and said, "That's it. That's what. That's amazing. That's it." Is good different for Audi? Now, because I think 
it's everything. I, I think it's um, it's their brand. Uh, it's how it's um, how they behave as a business. It informs their advertising. It informs their price point. Like it is a organising idea, um, and it had never they'd never really had an inline. It'd never really been articulated for the brand. It was disparate bits and pieces of work, and we'd we'd do um, uh, some stuff on fresh, and we'd do some stuff on special buys, and you know it all came from a, a tone and a, and a space, but the 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 glue was toned essentially. And there was a long idea in the background, but we won't go into that right now. But I think good different. Um, you can now go back and you can put good different on the bear shitting in the woods. I like this toilet paper, and I like this toilet paper. And the answer to your question is, of course I do. I mean, where else would I do it? You people. You can put it on the Tinkletons Christmas ad. Oh, bring us a Christmas pudding, a specially selected pudding, a champagne bowl-top pudding, and the custard. Seriously, pass me the custard. Nothing beats gold-top pudding for just nine ninety nine. You can put it on um, anything we've done, our fresh work in the past, and it makes absolutely perfect sense, and it makes absolutely perfect sense going forward. And, and it's a little bit more grown up as well. I like it, and it feels—it it just feels—it um, feels right, you know. Yeah. And I think if you're talking about gut, and and that's where where I saw that, I'm going, God, that's that's good, and it's different. No, 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 no. So that is that's perfect. That's a really hard one to spot on a wall. Just thinking. Oh yeah, because it'd be—I think it'd just be so I easy mean, the guys to overlook that. themselves. And there was multiple teams on that, and we generally only have one team per brief. But that was a a big baby looking at that one and trying to wrestle it all. And geez, that's a that's that's a monumentally good line. And um, a favourite piece of work. Uh, there's a whole lot of things to do with the VB regulars, which. Um, was that it was supposed to feel live, but then like the, it didn't quite come together in the edit, so we changed it into a retrospective, so it all had to be rewritten. You know, th- there was a whole lot of things like that, and when we won a, a, a DNAD yellow pencil for copywriting, we won it for idea. Um, it won lo- uh, golds, and, and it, it won. It got recognised, but I think it got recognised for the right reasons. You know, I, I, you look back, and it's timeless bit of work. I, I love the writing on that and that's sort of blowing my own trumpet, I guess, but I still go, yeah, that's good. And what a day it's been. One word for it, absolutely magnificent. We saw beards you can throw a dart at, zero penetration. We heard from John Coulson, getting your arm in is a lot easier than getting it out, apparently. Those who'd rather read an off-prawn than submit to quiche. Scale breakers. Salad dodgers. VB for drinking beer. That's what it's for, Australia. It's just such a shame that 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 platform wasn't carried forward for a few years because I think, you know, under that, that strategy of the beer for everyone and taking the backhanded compliment nature of Australian society and then aiming it at all the different tribal groups, you know, like blokes who punch above their weight or guys who peaked in high school. And and we had a three to five year pot of gold there that really should have um, really should have been borne out. But I think short termism uh, sometimes creeps into the business. Well, you know, particularly in this market. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, that, 
that didn't survive more than 18 months, but, you know, I'm very proud of that, so there you go. It's interesting you talk about longevity of a campaign too because I think, you know, people working on it, the creatives and the clients, get sick of it far quicker than people out there. You see it 500 yeah. times in an edit suite. Whereas right? people are like, oh, what happened to that? You know, yeah. I only just got used to it, you know. It's true, you know, and... and you I should always bear that in mind. I, I think that's a little bit of a piece that we can you can work on with... Um, clients and we can all work on it is the fact that just because you've lived with something for a long time it doesn't mean you need to reinvent the wheel because talk to your media company they'll say oh the average person saw it 1.4 times I'd, I'd like to say what of the future like what are you what are you hoping for with your new gig i want to what's your vision my vision is to continually be a better leader uh, to create those, I mean, BMF is, uh, we've created a, a, a great thing there. I want to see what I can do with the ecosystem with a, a slight, I mean, Home of the Long Idea is BMF. Brutal Simplicity of Thought is MNC Saatchi. So I think you've got to take what's in the, the brand's, what, what are, what's their ethos, what's their philosophy, and see what we can do there to create that environment where you just have extremely happy, fulfilled people who can't rave enough about the business and are making great work, you know, and I think that's that's all we can ever hope to do. It's a good ambition to have. So, Cam, I think you have well and truly lived up to Tara's clue that she gave about you, which was that you had a hard shell but a very soft centre. The, the clue was I'd heard that, right. but I didn't know it for sure and I was going to find out. Right, right. And I think we have found that to, to be true. There you go. Yeah. Oh, so that was a little a little thing before I was revealed as yeah. um, Crusty the Clown. And that's why we've been, been nodding to each other as you've, yeah. um, you know, You've got a bit soft. Yourself. Oh, there you go. <laughs> It's been really wonderful, mate, talking to you. And so, well, this is the part where, because this is a creative relay and you now get to choose someone that you would like to talk to, this is where you give us a hint as to who that person's going to be. I don't know yet. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest. A long drum roll. Like, I've got... got things in mind. Have I've you got, got candidates got, in uh, mind? I've got candidates. Tara, listen, thank you so much uh, for returning, for coming back. My pleasure. It's been really wonderful chatting to you at these last two and just getting to know you. I want to say it's a, it was a bit of a surprise and an honour that you asked me to come in, so no, thanks very much, Tara. Oh, I how really, sweet. No, absolutely. I was, yeah. I, was, I was a little bit um, taken aback. Oh. I wasn't choked up, particularly. Oh, but, um, so it was, oh maybe a, you don't have such on. a soft <laughs> That was a semi-soft centre. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for downloading the Creative Relay podcast brought to you by Smith & Weston. Go to our website at thecreativerelay.com made by our good friends at Macadamia Digital where you'll find a whole lot more info and extra content about the podcasts and all our guests. I'll be back next time with Cam and his guest. Meanwhile, don't forget to subscribe, like and rate us. See you next time. Yeah.